As a journalist, for better or for worse, it is a passport to all kinds of interesting moments in history. And you can begin to understand things and just get a chance to be in the room, places where you haven't earned the right to be there. And I've, I've sort of been uh, the beneficiary of that ever since. I think you and I have a, a similar instinct about the appeal of understanding China, which is that it is a place that the more you learn about it, the more you realize you don't yet know. And there is, a, it's, almost, it's almost addictive to want to know more and to realize really that you've just begun to scratch the surface. And that's thrilling. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. And today I'm speaking with Evan Osnos. Evan is a staff writer at The New Yorker, a CNN contributor, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His first book, Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, won the 2014 National Book Award. Prior to The New Yorker, Evan worked as the Beijing bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune, where he contributed to a series that won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. In 2020, he published the international bestseller, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, based on interviews with Biden, Barack Obama, and others. His latest book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, was published in September, 2021. So Evan, welcome to the podcast. For many years, you've been an indispensable voice on China, and most recently, you've become one of the sharpest observers of American political life. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thanks, Hank. So let's, let's start in Greenwich, Connecticut, where you grew up. Last year, you wrote a terrific piece in The New Yorker describing the shifting character of your hometown. Talk about your upbringing there and how it shaped you. Well, you know, Greenwich, for people who haven't been, is a, a fairly miraculous place to be a young person. I mean, let's be clear about it. It's a, it's a, it has always been a wealthy place. It's a suburb of New York City. And I was fortunate to be born into that set of circumstances. My great-grandparents moved to Greenwich in the 1930s. I moved there when I was about nine or 10 years old in the, uh, in the mid-80s and had one of America's great public school educations. And, you know, I, I sometimes joke, it's, there's some truth to it, that the truth is you, when you are given a set of advantages of the kind that I had growing up in a place like Greenwich with a family you have to go out of your way not to have some success in life because you are given a set of ingredients that if you can keep your nose clean, keep your eye on the ball, you can probably get a chance to do the things that you want to do. And I'm very aware of that, I think, Hank, because it's, it shapes how I think about how this country delivers on the promise of the opportunity to be able to make something of yourself. Uh, but I think in, in functional terms, let me just make one interesting observation, which is that when I was a kid growing up there, 
it was wealthy, but it was not yet what it has become in recent years. Today, it is really in a, in a very slender stripe of American economic prosperity. And it was always wealthy. It has been all the way back since the Industrial Revolution. But the reason why I draw some distinction is that the, the norms have, have, have changed a bit. Some of the, the body language, you could say, has moved to the point that in 1981, the biggest figure in town, the, the most important economic force in town was a guy named Reg Jones, who was the chairman and CEO of General Electric. I remember well, yeah. I figured you would. And he was the chairman of the business roundtable. He was an advisor to multiple presidents. And Reg lived in a house not too far away. And he was, as he once, his daughter told me the story that, well, he, his parents had a nice house, but it was not a dacha. It was not a palace. It was not what it could have been. And that was partly by design. And there was a way in which, I don't want to overstate the case, but there was a degree of a certain level of restraint that prevailed in the choices about how people acquired and ultimately used their resources, which was important, I think. Yeah, but there's no doubt about what I would call conspicuous consumption. Yeah. It hadn't taken off. That's yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after graduating, so you went from that great public school system, you went to Harvard, and you then went on to work at the Chicago Tribune after a brief stint at a local West Virginia paper. So what inspired you to pursue your career in journalism? Did that, that interest start in high school? Did you work for the school paper? Did you, what, about, what about Harvard? Where, where yeah. did it come from? I, I started uh, working on the high school paper and you know, worked at the local paper in the summer after high school. And I, you know, I had a cousin who had said to me, it doesn't look like you're using your time all that well this summer. You might want to consider getting another job because I had, you know, some fairly um, unchallenging high school student kind of job. I think I was a camp counselor and he, and he really nudged me and I went off and got a job at the local paper and, you know, writing about sports and so on. But the important thing was it got me, it got me aware of the idea that even as a young person, you could write and that you could, in a sense, nobody, it's, it's a little bit of a version of that old New Yorker cartoon that on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. When you're a journalist, nobody knows that you're 20 years old or 17 years old. And I was, I was the beneficiary of that. And Hank, I have to say, you know, part of the reason why I thought this was a plausible way to make a living was that when I was a little kid, my father had been a reporter. I mean, up to the point I was about five or six years old. He'd gotten out of that business. But I think in some ways that was the ideal introduction to it because he had a very positive memory of it. And he taught me one thing, which is that as a journalist, for better or for worse, it is a passport to all kinds of interesting moments in history. And you can begin to understand things and just get a chance to be in the room, places where you haven't earned the right to be there. And I've, I've sort of been uh, the beneficiary of that ever since. And that's what you've done. You know, I've always talked about how important it is to define whatever you're doing expansively. And that's what yeah. you've done with journalism. You really make a difference and you learn about really interesting places and pass that on to your readers. And, you know, I, I found you, I, I, I first became aware of your work when I saw that you were a very, not just a terrific journalist, but an insightful observer of China. And I've benefited from our discussions about China over the years. And of course, your 2014 book, Age of Ambition, was about China. So Evan, what led you to go to China? So as, as you said, you know, being a journalist gives you a passport to do all sorts of things. So what drove you to go to China? 
you were there in the early 2000s during a time of rapid transformation and talk about some of the formative experiences in the country and how did that shape your understanding of China? But to begin with, why'd you go there? I, I think you and I have a, a similar instinct about the appeal of understanding China, which is that it is a place that the more you learn about it, the more you realize you don't yet know. And there is, a, it's, almost, it's almost addictive to want to know more and to realize really that you've just begun to scratch the surface. And that's thrilling, right? I mean, that is something that, and it's not everywhere. It's not I've, all, I've often said, if someone tells me they're a China expert and then they tell me that they understand it, then by definition, I know they're not an expert, right? <laughs> exactly. I remember once somebody said, and I've carried this idea in my mind a lot over the years, which somebody once said that if they know what's going on inside the standing committee of the Politburo at any one time, they either know a lot more or a lot less than I do. And I take that to be true. Uh, and it's humbling. And for that reason, as a discipline, as a domain, it trains the mind, I think, to be a bit humble in the way about what we know and what we don't know. And I will draw a distinction, I should say, between, you know, working in China and working in Washington. I did notice when I came to Washington now eight years ago, that you were actually rewarded in a, and I don't think this is healthy, uh, for the projection of certainty, for saying, I am absolutely sure that what the president needs to do is X, Y, or Z. Or if somebody did X, then surely the result would be Y. And that was kind of, that's the nature of Washington punditry, but I don't think it trains the mind in any useful way. In fact, it's, I think, does us a disservice. In direct answer to your question, Hank, the reason I got interested in China was because I got to college and I started taking a class on contemporary Chinese politics. And I knew nothing about the subject before that. Yeah, it wasn't part of my high school curriculum, wasn't part of my family history. And I just found it like walking into a cave painted with the most extraordinary artwork on the walls. And I just wanted to begin to go deeper and deeper into this work and understand what I could. And that led me to the language that led me to then uh, studying in China. And that was now 25 years ago. So I'm, I'm still, and I'm still a student. So Evan, now let's talk a bit about what you've learned about China. In the age of ambition, you write about the struggle to define the idea of China. You would say it's a land of contradictions ruled by a Marxist Leninist party yet the largest buyer of Louis Vuitton. What do you think is the most useful or most accurate characterization of modern China? I think that the defining fact of it is that it's a place that was powerful, then weak, and is now regaining power. And it's in that dynamic, the loss of dignity and the loss of power, the loss of strength, the loss of confidence, and then the opportunity to regain it is on a scale like uh, we've never seen. That is the defining fact. And in, in many ways, I think so much of what flows from that is what we spend our time talking about when we're talking about China. But it's very rare that you get a country of that size. So oftentimes you'll see a, a town or a city or, you know, there are places that kind of fall off the path of human development and then regain it again. But it's pretty rare that you see in the span of 
a relatively short period of time, China has gone from being in control of one third of the world's wealth in the 19th century to then being so poor at the end of the Cultural Revolution that it was poorer than than North Korea. I mean, it had a, a per capita income that was one third the level of sub-Saharan Africa. And now it is in this, as we all know and talk about constantly, in this process of, of rapidly regaining this musculature. And the result of that is both the strength and the weakness that is the defining fact of it. It is, it is also the source of its excesses. It's also the source of its paranoias. It's also the source of its tremendous high bar for attaining scientific expertise and for trying to be a world leader. All of those things flow out of the, interestingly, almost paradoxically, they flow out of the experience of loss. Yep, and it's, Evan, what's just amazing when you wrap your mind around it is it's not just a country that's undergone this, but as you said, the size of the country. Absolutely. 1.4 billion people taking hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and to see something that large change that quickly. And in doing so, the impact it's had on the whole world. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Caused the whole world to change. Yeah. And and I think, you know, one of the things that's hard for people to appreciate from far away is that this reverberates down to the level of an individual family. So in one family today, you have surviving generations that have lived through such periods of deprivation, such periods of loss, and also family members who have lived through this period of tremendous, almost limitless possibility, and now this period of coming to terms with what it means to be a more constrained vision. All of this going on on tremendous scale, as you say. We've really never seen anything remotely like it. And, and, and the leaders today being hardened by what they've been through, right? You know, Absolutely. They've been through a lot. So, you know, as we've talked, a lot has happened since you left China and wrote your book. And today we're witnessing a very different China, a very different U.S.-China relationship than what you were seeing in 2013. What are the biggest changes you've noticed and what accounts for them? And how do you view the China challenge for the U.S. going forward? I think that if I was writing Age of Ambition today, a couple of things that I would view differently. One is that the power of technology has changed in the way that it functions as a, as a political fact. When I was in China, particularly in that period after the 2008 Olympics, technology was essentially an empowering force for regular people. You saw the way they were kind of using the social media online in order to impose some pressure on the government to rein in corruption, which really was becoming a fundamental threat to the, to the government. And it felt as if those forces were continuing to, to, to build outward. And one of the big changes is, of course, that technology has become really more of a tool by the state and the party than it is a tool by the people today. And that changes things, that they're able to use. The state's been very effective in using technology both to maintain its political primacy and then also as a way of preserving its national security. And and that's a very volatile fact. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why China is at odds with the rest of the world. To your question about 
the future of the U.S.-China relationship, I, I think it is correct that one of the things we sometimes hear is that this is less about the fundamental difference between a democracy and a authoritarian regime or, you know, the difference between China's state-led economy versus a, a market-based economy. It is also, in addition to those things, it is also fundamentally about how technology will be used in the years ahead. And I think for that reason, it takes on this added, very charged dimension. And one thing that I think is important to mention, Hank, which, which worries me, actually, is that the subject of the U.S.-China relationship has gone from being the kind of thing that was esoteric. It was, you know, the domain of experts. And I use that word in quotes. It was the domain of people who had, who had spent years, years steeping themselves in this subject to something that is now essentially available to everybody politically to have a position on, to talk about. And you don't necessarily have to know all that much about it in order to have an opinion. That's not a recipe for great policymaking. Yeah, and on top of that, everybody seems to have the same opinion right now. Right, right. <laughs> right. And, and so, yeah. you, know, you know, fascinating, as you talk about technology, you know, in 2013, being a positive force, and you you cited, you know, corruption, you know, and I, I agree with you there, and also on the environment, you know, mm -hmm. this was, yeah. this was one of the, one of the really drivers behind air quality and so on. And I think the other, you know, there have been a lot of changes, and you're right. I mean, technology is now ground zero of the competition between U.S. and China. Yeah. And, and citing that, I think the other big change, you know, when you think back to 2013 and the years leading up to that, years of reform, you know, the party was important, but the party wasn't the vehicle through which you know, the country was governed. True. You know, it was governed through the state. And, and John Jamin, for instance, said the party's a big tent, we'll take everyone into it. And Xi Jinping uses a party now to govern. I mean, that yeah. it, it, it putting the party into in everything. So much more assertive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now let's turn to the United States. Your most recent book is called Wildland, and it starts right where Age of Ambition left off. In 2013, and you've just returned to Washington, D.C. from Beijing. You're now a national correspondent for The New Yorker looking for the roots of America's political dysfunction. Where did that journey take you and what did you learn? You know, Hank, thinking about it right now today, in the course of our conversation, you, you pointed me to something that I don't think I've ever drawn this connection before, and it's actually quite relevant to both the subject of China and to the United States, which is that the growth of the party in China over the course of the last decade is one of the, is one of the defining facts. And in one of the defining facts of American politics is actually the declining power of the party, that parties have actually become drastically weaker at the same time that partisanship is strong. If you think about it today, you know, you could you could line up 100 Americans and the number of them who could tell you who is the leader of the Democratic National Committee today or the Republican National Committee today would be vanishingly small. It <laughs> used to be, of course, that parties 
parties were a strong feature of American politics 50 years ago. And one of the functions that they served was a modulating effect. They would take all of these sort of the wacky ideas within the party and uh, among the membership, and they would fashion them through some version of coercion and leadership, you know, some kind of LBJ strong arming and financial power, because they could deprive you of resources to run if you were a candidate. And they could get to a version that is negotiable and that could be then paired with whatever the other party was. Today, obviously, because individual candidates can raise their own money, because earmarks are gone, and it's a whole nother conversation. But as a result, parties are weak and they have a very hard time getting the cats to march in the same direction. And that is one of the facts that I discovered when I came here. And it became one of the sort of background dynamics that led me off on this kind of political um, hunt is really what it was, Hank. I was trying to understand the source of our paralysis, our our inability to get anything done. It's not, you know, you can't understand the story of my coming home without what happened on the very first day I came back, which after all was October 1st, 2013, and the government shut down. And it, was, and it shut down for the first time in 17 years. And it was just this incredible kind of vivid demonstration of this institutional failure that was happening. And I, I had this, this is, you know, as a foreign correspondent by kind of nature and temperament, my nature is to get out of the office and walk around and talk to people. And I remember going over to Capitol Hill on that day, and I'm standing outside of Congress when they have shut themselves down. And I'm standing there and I, I run into some tourists from Finland who were walking around with their suitcases because the museums were closed. There was nowhere for them to go. And they said to me, dear American, essentially, does this happen very often, your government shutting down? And I had this moment of sort of stepping outside of myself and realizing, how did this happen? How did we get to a point where this is considered business as usual? And that was the beginning of this process. You know, it's fascinating, too, because I had a discussion the other day with, with a Republican member of the Senate about the debt limit. Hmm. And he said to me, it's fascinating, Hank, in all my time, I've never had a constituent come to me and, and ask me about the debt limit. Right. He said, he said, I don't think they're focused on it. He said, that's sort of, he said, that's inside the beltway and that's inside politics and reporters. So yeah. it's, it's different, yeah. a different ecosystem. Yeah. Now, one of the three places you profile in the book is the south side of Chicago. Tell our listeners about some of the people you met there and what it taught you about the broader forces afflicting our country right now. Well, it's a part of the country you know well, and it's uh, important to my family. My family originally came from the south side of Chicago and go back and, you know, essentially my, my grandparents were what, what could really only be described as a kind of arranged marriage in the village. They lived about three blocks from each other in near Hyde Park and their parents introduced them. And that was, that was about all the, the role they had in the process of choosing, but lucky for me, they did choose. And then when I came back to the United States, I found myself drawn back to the South side to try to understand issues of race and class. And I think, you know, Chicago has been for a hundred years, this incredible laboratory of understanding what's going on in American sociology. You know, Frederick Jackson Turner was the one who said, it's the place in the nation where all the forces intersect. And he was talking about the beginning of the 20th century, but it is absolutely true today. And I became very interested in trying to understand what role, for instance, violence played 
in the daily lives of people growing up in neighborhoods that were that were so profoundly different than the neighborhood where I grew up in, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut, because it almost boggles the mind to think about just how different your life course is based on the zip code in which you enter life. And I wanted to make that clear for my own mind and ultimately for readers. And I will give you just one example of somebody who I met, kind of an amazing person. I met a guy, I was standing on the street, actually, on the south side of Chicago. I was writing an article for The New Yorker about violence in a neighborhood. And a guy came up to me and he said, who are you with? And I said, well, I'm with The New Yorker magazine. And he said, uh, is that the one with the cartoons? I said, yeah. And he said, well, I used to read it in prison. And I said, well, this is somebody I think I'd like to know a little more about. And we got to talking. His name is Maurice Clark. And this was now six years ago. And I lost track a long time ago how many interviews we've done over the years. I've gone to visit him a number of times. And Reese Clark went to prison as a teenager for gang crimes, and he spent a decade in prison and he came back out. And what he said to me that afternoon was, he said, if you want to understand what's going on here, I'll take you on a tour of the neighborhood. And we drove around and he took me essentially from place to place to place, understanding why one shooting led to another shooting, which led to another shooting, and the ways in which it played out on social media. In fact, some of these kinds of disputes were in the realm of the digital and then passed into the realm of the physical. All of this leading to this broader realization of just how much living in his house on his block was, as I put it in the book, eventually, it was like a pre-existing condition. And it's not an accident, I have to say, Hank, that when finally the COVID pandemic reached Chicago in 2020, the single, the, the, I don't think I've talked about this publicly, but the first death from COVID in Chicago was in Auburn Gresham, in the neighborhood where Reese Clark lived. And it's because of all of the reasons that contribute to that. It makes you more likely to have asthma. It makes you more likely to have poor medical care, puts you far away from a COVID test. And all of these factors are, are integrated. And that's my, 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 my hope with this book was to try to put these facts of our lives into conversation with one another. So we stop seeing them as separate issues, but as in fact, integrated issues. Yeah, it's just, it's hard. You know, I've grown up in the Chicago area. Yeah. Live in Chicago now. And, you know, if you spend any time in schools, you just realize, you know, that our number one civil right should be a civil right to a, to a good education. Yeah. And yeah. You know, and we, we don't even have to get into something as extreme as the South Side of Chicago when you just look at the fact that property taxes finance our education system to a large extent. I mean, yeah. what, what, what could lead to more inequity than that? Well, I'll give you just one thing on Reese Clark's life that's so relevant to what you're describing, which is that, you know, he's a guy who was doing well in school. He was actually quite successful in math. And there became there was this point in this life story. It's almost like this fork in the road that is almost sort of too. It's it's not melodramatic to describe it that way. But if he had been able to get the bus fare to go from one neighborhood to another high school, and been able to kind of continue moving along with a pretty good education, his life would be extremely different than what it turned out to be. Because he ended up going to the neighborhood high school. They didn't have the bus fare to be able to get him from one place to the next. And as he said to me, kind of with a wry tone in his voice, he said, you know, so began my life of crime. And I, 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 it's not extravagant to really identify those moments in life when 
a different set of policy choices would have created a different set of systems that might have allowed a kid like that to have a very different outcome. Yeah, very, very sad. So before Wildland, you wrote a biography of Joe Biden, which was published last year. What did you learn about him through your interviews that you think most Americans don't see on TV or read in the news? And how do you think his life has prepared him to deal with some of the issues we've just discussed, from the China challenge to the fracturing of American society? I, I think that a, there's a feature of him which is both a strength and a weakness, and we're seeing we're seeing we've seen both of them on display over the last year. I'll tell you exactly what I mean. The strength is that by the time he ran for the presidency in 2020. He had been through a number of humbling experiences in his life. I mean, he had lost the race for the presidency on two occasions in 1988 and then ultimately also in 2018. He'd been passed over in 2015 as essentially the heir designate for the Obama presidency. And, he, you know, he thought his political career was effectively over. He had also, and I think it's important to mention this, suffered a tremendous degree of personal tragedy, as we all know, because of the loss of his son and his wife and his daughter. The combination of those factors, I think, Hank, had created in him by 2020 the possibility of being president in a way that he simply would not have been earlier, which was somebody, one of his aides said to me after Bo Biden died in 2015, that in a curious way, it liberated Joe Biden of a degree of a kind of bumptious arrogance that he was no longer pushing to be the guy as actively, as desperately as he had been earlier in his career. It's just a fact. He had been sort of liberated from that. And it was only then that he actually became capable of being president. People could read from him that he wasn't a guy who was quite so desperate to be liked anymore. He just was going to get the job done. The reason why that, and that, that helped him because in 2020, he was, he was in many ways the aesthetic and kind of you know, moral opposite of his competitor. And, and he was also somebody who projected a sense that he'd been humbled by history a bit and humbled by the fates. I think the, the challenge for him, the reason why it becomes a negative is that he finds himself now in a position where he has, over the years, he's become more and more persuaded of, uh, to follow his instincts. That even when people are saying you're wrong, don't do this, you're wrong, you know, you're running too much as a moderate, it's 2020, people want you to be more radical. And he said, no, they don't actually, they want moderates, I'm going to run as a moderate. And he did that in 2020, and he, and he was elected on that basis. But he is a, uh, you know, I'd say that he's a person who's become more and more convinced of his own instincts, as one does when they get elected president. You have to be, in a sense, capable of sort of staying true to the course, but it makes it hard when the decisions are getting harder, when there's more negative feedback, and you have to be able to find that balance between being responsive to what people are telling you, but also staying true to your commitment. And he's struggling to, to find his way through those straits right now. And I, I think that doesn't come across necessarily in the daily headlines, but that's a feature of his mindset that is a, a really important piece of this. He is to use a term that he would probably use, he can be a little bit bullheaded at times. And that is both his advantage and it's also a vulnerability he's gonna to have to contend with. So how do you see him in dealing with some of the international challenges or China and so on? I think that the, the advantage he has 
with dealing with China is that he is not particularly ideological and hasn't been. It's not a far part of his life. He has actually moved. You've seen him travel over the course of the last few years from being almost dismissive of China's rise, saying it doesn't pose any serious challenge for the United States. You know, in his mind, he was kind of operating in a vision of China of a few years ago when, as he put it, you know, they can't really innovate. They can't do this. They can't do that. He's moved pretty fast towards the other view, which is to say China poses a serious challenge to the United States economically and politically, and we need to respond to that. He has not gone into the direction as far as uh, what has become a kind of new fashion in Washington to assume that we're on a collision course towards fundamental, if not an active hot war. He's not there. What he's trying to do is use the China challenge as a, an inspiration, as a Sputnik moment to make the United States be better as the United States. And that's a productive track, actually. It implies some political tension because there's going to be members of his own party and certainly members of the other party who are going to say, well, you're not being hard enough on China. But it is what he's I think that the, the great challenge and this actually is in, a, in its own curious way is running a theme through the books that I've written over the last few years has been that the greatest challenge to the United States is not China's strength. It's American weakness and trying to address our own deficits of democracy before we can make uh, a viable challenge to China's growth. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, and I think even China right now has got some very, very significant problems. Yeah. And I think they're focused on those problems more than the United States. You know, I, I, I say they're playing the ball, you know, rather than the man, right? Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, I believe we're going to be a great power for a long time if we can fix our problems and get our democracy to function, deal with some of our fiscal issues, you know, and show some leadership, economic leadership abroad. But uh, we're not going to be, no matter what China does, if we can't deal with our own problems. Yeah. And of course, China understands strength more than anything else. And, you know, and, and the strength they're going to look at is our domestic strength. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they look at us and they say, the United States has been making a, a case to the world that its democracy is a fundamental asset and that that gives it something that is more powerful. Because look, the blunt fact is China is larger than us. It is going to be a larger economic power than the United States for years to come. And the American argument has been that may be true, but we have some special sauce. And that involves a dynamic, multi-ethnic society that's capable of taking in immigrants and absorbing their talents and their power and ultimately regenerating our economy and our culture constantly. And what we've seen over the last few years has been that that special sauce has been thrown into doubt because we're not allowing ourselves to give ourselves the power of resilience. And you know, I think that that in, a, in its own way is perhaps the greatest self-hobbling choice that we've made is by closing ourselves off to what has been our great strength and a thing that China doesn't have. You and I both know it's, you know, China is an amazing place. It does not have immigration as a source it, of resilience. It sure doesn't. It's, it's closed and we've been open. So I want to ask you one last question along these lines, which has to do with technology and social media in the U.S. And you, you talked about the impact in China and how the Chinese government is now using technology. And 
you know, you, you of course, as a, as a journalist that's, you know, focused on facts and, and understanding complicated things and explaining them to people, how do you look at our ability to, to, to have a, a democracy work in the United States with, 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 you know, the way technology is working and, and you look at the power of social media and so on? Do you think our founders would have written the Constitution the way they had if they'd understood social media? <laughs> I, we know for a fact that they wouldn't. In fact, you know, one of the great observations was that you know, Madison believed that the United States didn't have to worry about factionalism because it was so big that, in fact, it would, you know, all of these different voices would be canceling each other out. And no single voice would be able to sweep people away. And of course, what we've seen is that social media has this extraordinary exponential power to take ideas both malicious and positive and accelerate their effects. I think, like a lot of our troubles in politics, this comes down to leadership. And what I would hope to see is organizations, social media organizations, in which the people who run them see themselves as stewards of a larger, uh, of a larger and more fragile good than simply the viability of their own going concern because whether they ever intended it or not if you run a big social media company today you run something with as much power to either help or hurt our species as running any big company that has an environmental effect and we've seen that process as people have come to terms with some of their own leadership requirements and i hope that we begin to see more of that in the social media world too Amen. And that leads me to my last question for you. What advice do you give to our young listeners who want to be the next Evan Osnos? How can they succeed in a career in media, journalism, foreign affairs? What do you tell young people today? Well, I, I, for one thing, they should aim higher. But if they are, if they are setting out in one of those businesses, and I've been an incredibly lucky guy to, to be able to do those things, the thing that has been the single greatest advantage is learning a skill that nobody can take away from you. And in my case, it's language. I learned Chinese as a young person, and I would never have been able to have the opportunities in journalism or in foreign affairs or in any of the kinds of things that have been available to me had I not spent the time sitting there, stooped over the desk with a light on, learning the characters for hours after hour. And it doesn't have to be Chinese for you. It can be anything at all, but learn something that is a barrier to entry for others who are going to try to get there first. Yeah. And I'm even having to say to some young people, just learn something. When they yeah. say, I, when they say, I want to lead, or what do I need to do to be a leader or do this or that? And I said, well, you've really got to be good at something first. Yeah. And so it, it uh, you can afford to do almost anything other than not to learn. Yeah. And of course, and of course, to learn something that's not easily fungible is even better. <laughs> and do it when you're young. Before I say this as the as a you know a loving dad with two kids, it gets a lot harder to learn a hard skill uh, once you get a little bit older. So you've got those years when you're young to to learn something that others can't do, whether it's in engineering or it's in foreign languages. Learn something that nobody can take away from you. And I guarantee you, you're going to be creating opportunities for yourself. For sure. Evan, thanks. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. And if they're like me, they'll eagerly await your next journalist endeavor. 
Thank you, Hank. That is a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.